0: TWA was a labor of love and it was a real passion project. I used to be a baggage handler for Delta Airlines at LAX. And I sat and watched the TWA building and fly out of JFK. And it sat there vacant and dark for 20 years. And, you know, it's one of those, "Ah, somebody should do something with that project. I wonder what they are doing with that building. Uh, And so one day I woke up and I decided to be the somebody and we dealt with 22 government agencies uh we had 176 consulting firms hmm. nine law firms work on the project uh we had about 7000 construction workers work on the project it took a few years to execute but you know we have uh, a 200,000 square foot lobby it's the largest hotel lobby in the world
1: hi this is matt sleppen and welcome to leading voices in real estate Today's episode, recorded on October 17th, is a conversation with Tyler Morse, the Chairman and CEO of MCR Hotels, the third largest owner-operator of hotels in the United States. We recorded this conversation in time for the upcoming holiday travel season where so many of us will be thinking about the joys and hassles of air travel, road travel, and a good night's sleep in a cool place. My interview with Tyler was a few weeks ahead of the quickening conversations about recession and what's become a serious capital markets pause in the real estate investment business. Since we do not want leading voices to be quiet on the current dislocation in the markets, we've scheduled a special episode which will come out next week instead of on our usual twice a month schedule, which will be a conversation with Byron Carlock, the US practice leader for PricewaterhouseCoopers, and the man who presents the annual PwC Urban Land Institute Emerging Trends Survey. I heard Brian lead two different panels two weeks ago at the ULI annual meeting, and we're lucky to have Byron jump into a conversation on the current market conditions within the context of the longer-term trends in our special episode next week. With that as a caveat, Tyler talks about ebullient fundamentals for the hotel business using the term Roaring Twenties, Better said, beginning of the Roaring Twenties, meaning a good six- to eight-year run ahead. With the capital markets dislocation, I might reset that analogy to suggest that the fundamentals are still strong, so he's looking forward to a strong run in this business, bar unforeseen deep secular challenges during the next economic cycle. And that might be my mantra generally, except for the office sector, which does have deep secular changes, The coming cycle, which is hopefully soon after a reset, should be a good run in most sectors of the real estate business, and according to Tyler, most certainly in the hospitality space. Our conversations about the hotel business on Leading Voices are always fun, because we're talking about a subject, at least leisure travel, that we also appreciate. Tyler does a great job talking about the rewards programs that are driving the business, the different hotel product types, And then a lot of discussion about his passion project, the award-winning TWA Hotel at JFK. I've not been there yet, but I'm going to fly through Kennedy on my next trip to the Big Apple instead of Newark just to check it out. We've all returned to business travel. I've attended three conferences in the last month and a half. NMHC in Washington, D.C. in early October, from which I came back with COVID. The headline at NMHC for me were the rent is too damn high protesters who actually stormed the stage. Then my wife, Diane, and I went to the biannual Fisher Center conference at Pebble Beach and among others heard from the San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. The mood was rough and will be until rates stabilize, when we could start to reset and maybe even get a bit of a rollback on rates. But that's going to be a while. And then to ULI in Dallas, which I already mentioned. I always talk about search a bit during these introductions, and in traveling to these three conferences for ZRG Business, I'll echo a comment made by so many of our guests about the real estate business, which is that more than most industries, real estate is a people business, a relationship business, and therefore a long game business. Especially for young people coming into the business and those who wish both success and a fulfilling career, I advise you to embrace that side of the business And do find your own leadership pathways and networking through organizations like NMHC, ULI, ICSC, CREW, NIOP, and others. It's good career advice, and coincident to this conversation with Tyler, conference travel does keep the hotel business going strong. As always, please share this and other episodes with your friends in the business. Other hospitality conversations have included interviews with Ed Walter, both from ULI and Host Hotels, Jim Rizzolio, also currently the leader of Host Hotels, Gilda Perez-Alvarado from JLL, Chip Conley from Joy DeVivre and Airbnb, and Steve Wilson, founder of the 21C hotel chain. If you have comments or questions about the show or need help on the human capital side of your business, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Tyler and happy holiday travels. Tyler Morris, Welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. We are recording in mid-October for a podcast to be released in the beginning of November. So that means to me we're in the middle of fall business conference season. I'm away this week and next week, and I was two weeks ago. We're approaching the Thanksgiving and end of year holiday season and looking forward to what to expect in 2023. And we haven't done a hospitality conversation on Leading Voices since uh, Jim Rizzolio at Host Hotels back in 2021. So there's a lot to be updated on and we'll have a wide ranging conversation about you, your business, the hospitality business, COVID, post COVID, if that's where we are and what to expect going forward. So thank you for being here.
0: Great. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So first, just we've heard your voice, but if you could do a quick introduction to yourself and your company, and then we'll go from there.
0: So uh, I'm Tyler Morse. I'm the chairman and CEO of MCR. We are the fourth largest hotel owner operator in the country. We have about 150 hotels in 37 states, and we have developed some iconic hotels. The TWA Hotel is probably the most well-known, the Highline Hotel in Manhattan, the Pasadena Hotel and Pool, and some other fun, notable
1: hotels. So do people know what TWA is? Trans World Airlines. (laughs) I know, but like do young people like get, do they remember or Pan Am or Eastern or? Uh, TWA and Pan Am, people recall.
0: Then there's a step function drop off in what people recall. But people know what TWA is. If you're over 30, you definitely know. If you're under 30, you know,
1: it's hit or miss. But now it's almost retro cool. It is. Uh, And it's like resurrecting an iconic brand, which you did. I know I'm jumping right into a conversation here, but you resurrected that brand with your hotel. So it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. No, I I love the brand. And, you know, it was a global brand for 100 years. Right. And, you know, that doesn't go away lightly.
1: The global brand that probably best represented by its name brand, the air travel. I don't think there was Pan Am too, right? But more than United or Continental or whatever, that, that's gone too. But- well, what nobody realizes is
0: TWA was the only domestic and international carrier. Pan Am was just international. Right. You could not take a domestic Pan Am. So people thought very highly of TWA. And the greatest thing about the uh, having that brand is you can't have a bad experience on a TWA flight right now. <laughs> that's probably true. Too- people they only remember the nostalgic, fabulous aspects of TWA.
1: That's a fair deal. And no one they're not like going to beat up an angry passenger who's drank too much and has been waiting on the tarmac for too long. So you're right. It's interesting in the hospitality business, unlike almost any other form of real estate the office buildings, but we don't love them anymore, is that there are iconic properties that we all know, love, care about, and that must permeate your company and its culture to have them?
0: Yes. I mean, people love traveling and it is a basic human desire and a basic human need. And humans are curious people. That's why we go to conferences. That's why we go to meetings. People like to have fun, see their family, friends and loved ones and have a cocktail with them. And that is not changing. And the incidence of travel globally and certainly domestically c- goes up every single year as travel becomes even more and more democratized every year. Travel used to be a high-end good or a high-end product uh, in the 1960s and 70s. It was crazy expensive. Yeah. And that relative price point continues to come down. There's travel available for all different purposes and all different walks of life. And people love traveling. So it's an industry
1: with the wind at its back. It's interesting with the democratization. I'm thinking about air travel because it all used to be relatively nice. And now a lot of it just kind of sucks because the seats are too tight together. It's really cheap, but it gets people to travel. And then you sit alongside that in the rest of the airplane. So you see the democratization along the hierarchy. Every time you travel and you feel it, it's kind of yucky in some ways so it's a fascinating comment
0: well i I think the air travel
1: business should be renamed the
0: transportation business yeah it was really never a service business it was a transportation business the idea was going from point a to point b and then you'd have fun at point b right or you would uh, have a meeting at point b so one of the reasons one of our thought processes behind the twa hotel was to start the fun part of your trip at the airport. The airport was a means to an end, and it was a means to a a rough flight environment. But now you can actually have fun at the airport and have fun at the end of your trip and be able to take Instagrams from the airport and say, wow, look at me. Look what I'm doing. This is fun.
1: Right. The symbol of about to travel. We'll drill down into the TWA hotel in a bit. but And then... In that concept of democratization of travel, talk about the different product types that you have within your portfolio, because I think you run the gamut.
0: We have hotels from two-star to five-star, high-service experiences to low-service experiences. They are uh, close to a variety of attractions and a variety of business uh, centers from a demand generation standpoint. Mm -hmm. Some are in big cities and some are in small cities. And you know, we, we love all of our children equally, but just because you're in a small city doesn't mean that the service levels are lower or that the experience is less fun. So, you know, we span all price points. Mm-hmm. and There's a different product for different customers in various markets.
1: Got it. And talk about how you own so many hotels. It's through fun vehicles. So help us think about that and understand who the investors are and what that kind of, not the return is, but what your value prop is for those investors alongside that there's different levels of properties and different locations and how that all fits into a fund environment.
0: Yeah. So uh, we invest out of a variety of discretionary uh, fund vehicles today. We have a couple uh, that we're finishing up investing today. We're raising our fourth fund uh, right now that will be about a billion, but we have earned... Uh, over 20% IRRs on about $2.5 billion of capital, of equity capital invested over the past 16 years. And our portfolio today is around just over $5 billion, uh in total assets under management. Uh, we operate all of our hotels. So we are the owner and the operator. Uh, and we have close to 10,000 employees. And uh, that's the alpha. Mm
2: hmm.
0: Uh, in our investment construct is that we run the hotels really well and very profitably. And that benefit uh, accrues to our investors. There isn't a middleman in between uh, the investment and the capital dollars uh, and the folks on the ground, which allows us to align incentives for all of our team members around investor returns. Mm
1: -hmm. And just taking out the middleman, save dollars, And or does it more align how you want to approach the business because you have a secret sauce about the culture and approach to the business in your company?
0: It saves a few bucks, but it's really much more about aligning interests. When you have people, fee mongers along the way, Mm -hmm. they have different incentives. And our incentives are uh, limited partner returns Mm -hmm. and uh, value to our LPs. Uh, and that's achieved through our MCR culture and our unique way that we run the hotels from a performance standpoint.
1: Uh-huh. I want to come back to that, of course. And I'm, I'm also curious about 20% IRRs. In the timeframe that you hold hotels and in your fund vehicles, hospitality of all the real estate classes is the most volatile, I think, So talk about how you handle that bucking bronco of volatility um, alongside both those returns and doing that in a fund vehicle, not a REIT vehicle or others. Sure. I
0: think hospitality is the most volatile asset class in real estate, largely because we don't have leases. Mm -hmm. All of our customers check out every morning at nine in the morning, and we hope that they come back at 5 p.m. And there's a variety of ways that we ensure that that's going to happen. We know that that that's going to happen. People love the points. So, uh, we invest heavily in Hilton and Marriott hotels, Mm -hmm. uh, their point programs are the strongest, uh, loyalty programs, Marriott's Bonvoy program, uh, and the Hilton honors program. And then in a variety of markets where we have latent demand, we have a lot of independent hotels where you don't need a flag. And we're a low leverage investor, mm-hmm. which is very unique in the hotel business. A lot of people borrow as much as they can. And so a lot of those chickens are coming home to roost uh, right now. If you have L plus uh, 800 debt, you're now paying 1200 right. basis points. You're paying 12% interest, maybe 13%. You know, it's like it's 1982 again. Mm-hmm. So by uh, aligning the product with the right brands and staying low in leverage spectrum, we've never lost money on an investment in the history of MCR. So in uh, almost 17 years, we've never lost a hotel. We've never lost money on an investment.
1: That's a rarity in a highly volatile space like hotels. I'm assuming that means you didn't try to sell anything when COVID hit, so you had the ability to ride it out versus had to sell. Although prices didn't drop as much as one would have thought they would have. Most of the things we sold in COVID, we had bought during COVID. We purchased
0: about sixty hotels uh, and invested two and a half billion dollars during COVID. Uh-huh. And those were very attractive investments.
1: And we cycled out of a number of those hotels later on in COVID. And and think about during COVID What I've heard in the past is there wasn't the distress that you would have thought in terms of sales. Might there have been distress at different places in the hospitality business? Was it high end, low end, mid end or no theme to that?
0: There was a little bit of distress. We bought a couple of hotels out of bankruptcy. We bought some notes. Uh There were some foreclosure actions. But to your point, the distress was not as rampant as people thought it might have been. Mm -hmm. But I think you saw the same thing in 2009, right? Everybody geared up and thought, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to find a lot of great investments, but they, they didn't materialize nearly as much in 2009 either. The world has a lot of capital in it right now. And uh, I I describe it, you know, you got to go back to the 1980s. The world in 1980 did not have enough capital. Mm -hmm. There was a shortage of capital flows and with the tech companies just growing like crazy it's created a lot of global wealth and a lot of capital Uh, and that capital flows like water it flows into all different cracks Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of those have flowed into mezzanine investing preferred equity investing and those are all the different vehicles through which you can invest in hotels it's not just simply equity ownership, but there are credit approaches to play in hotels as well.
1: I bet. And does your, do your funds play in different parts of the capital stack that way, or is it all whole ownership? No, we do. We we
0: play in, uh, across the capital stack. We have uh, lent money to hotels. Uh, we just play in hotels, mm-hmm. and but we have done all of the different food groups, buying distressed loans, doing bankruptcy, uh, processes debtor in possession processes as well as traditional equity ownership of hotels
1: got it and and back to the covid thing i'm i'm assuming that by your the snl crisis had no liquidity so that was the issue then not much liquidity during the gfc except everyone had seen what happened in the snl crisis and how much money people made so therefore they were just promising themselves to be patient because they knew it would get over at some point
0: Yeah. Well, the the distinction is during the SNL crisis, uh, the banks that were the savings and loans, their entire book was real estate. Right. So when real estate crashed, that presented an existential problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not the case anymore. If you look at the big guys, Bank of America or Wells Fargo, I think maybe they're 25 percent in real estate, but they have loans uh, across the spectrum. So that when one food group uh, has an issue, uh, it doesn't bring down your entire book of business. The problem with the S&Ls was it was just real estate and so when one food group crashed it created you know a, a liquidity crisis of epic proportions for those institutions creating opportunities for
1: people with capital elsewhere. Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about the hospitality business generally and the trends and what's happened And I I think in 10-year increments or something like this, but the hospitality Mm -hmm. business is not what it was 10 years ago. The flags are not what they were 10 years ago. And the different gradations of service that we've talked about wasn't what it was 10 years ago. There wasn't Airbnb. Expedia was just starting as an intermediary. So this whole ecosystem has changed. And maybe talk about, in particular, the change with the two flags, Hilton and Marriott, which you talked about a little bit ago, Um, Because they've evolved into just humongous organizations and playing at every end of the spectrum. Sure. I think the biggest functional change is they are all
0: capital or asset light. Yep. They are franchise organizations. So essentially, they are intellectual property companies Mm -hmm. uh, and consumer product companies. They're not that dissimilar from Kellogg's or Procter & Gamble or General Mills. And their biggest asset- are the points. Uh, It's the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you look at why Blackstone made money on their Hilton investment, they paid top of the market prices for Hilton in 2007. And it was a terrific investment for them, largely because of Hampton Inn and a few of the other select service products. When they bought the company, it had a thousand Hampton Inns, And when they sold out of it, it had 2,000 Hampton Mm Inns. And they created Home 2 and a variety of other uh, select service products, uh, which had a great cash flow stream. Marriott bought Starwood Mm -hmm. to further uh, bulk up their portfolio from a points perspective. And uh, so you can now earn and burn your points at a ton of different hotels. You can earn at a residence inn and burn at a JW Marriott or Ritz Carlton. And that's very attractive to a lot of road warriors. The general model is you earn the points on business travel uh, when you're away from your family and your company is paying, Mm -hmm. and then you redeem them for a free vacation for your family. That's the quid pro quo. And you get to use those points in lieu of spending the time with your family Monday to Friday, uh, <laughs> you spend it on a big weekend trip in Florida.
1: It's interesting. I do a pretty good job with air travel points. I do a lousy job with hotel points. So I haven't managed my business travel with that level of loyalty ever. And I need to do that.
0: Yes. Well, the point programs are also consolidating and you know people are playing the credit card points and they're able to use those and redeem those in a lot of different formats as well hotel points have always been worth less than airline points Mm -hmm. but airlines are getting smart about this as well now they're giving you points per dollar right not per mile hotels have always been on a per dollar basis Mm -hmm. per dollar spent Mm -hmm. versus the you know uh, some sort of other construct about mileage but you know i actually think that the loyalty programs globally have run amok. There's too many loyalty programs. There's a loyalty program for everything now. Yep. You know, you go to CVS, they have a loyalty program. You go to your coffee shop, they have a loyalty program. The point of loyalty programs is to create incremental business mm-hmm. and drive incremental spend. But to the extent that everyone has one and you're a member of every program, they're not really altering your consumer behavior. Yep. So, this is a, a bit more of an again an existential question when American Airlines started a advantage, I mean it was cutting edge and then United had their program and Delta had their program. but as loyalty programs have proliferated, the points have become less valuable, and they they're not driving consumer behavior to the degree that they were in the past
1: absolutely it it's interesting i what I really hated were all those little cards where you you would go to a sandwich shop and you had to have ten punches on the thing for the next uh-huh. free sandwich, and then your wallet became this big, but no one carries a wallet anymore. So now you have to do it on your phone for everything. And
0: <laughs> well, if you look at the most successful companies out there, they don't have loyalty programs. Apple does not have a loyalty program. And you know, you, you still buy the products. Yep. And A lot of companies have determined that they have a competitive product uh, and they don't need to buy customers' loyalty through the point programs.
1: Yeah. Okay. So back to your business. And I want to think about this because you talked about your secret sauce and how you manage these, but you're managing for a flag and you have the requirements of a flag and you manage largely for those flags for a big part of your portfolio. And then, Mm -hmm. so I want to think through that and then think through the different gradations of the types of hotels that you manage, and which are the best investments, or are they all the best investments? So there are two questions at once, but I want to explore both the brands, the loyalty that you're describing, and then how you manage and operate at those different levels. Sure.
0: The highest return on investment
1: in the hotel space
0: Mm -hmm. by a country mile is Residence Inn by Marriott and Hampton Inn by Hilton. They drive unbelievable consumer loyalty. The brands provide 55 to 65% of your demand from a customer central reservation system uh-huh. standpoint, uh-huh. and the, the fees are worthwhile. And then uh, there's about 400 brands in the hotel space. Uh, those two stand out as the best return on invested capital.
1: And, and why is that? Talk about what, what makes that work. And if the rest of the network disappeared, would they be able to do what they're doing that way?
0: No, they still need the network. The network is the earn and burn that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, earn at a Hampton Inn, redeem at a Waldorf Astoria. Earn at a residence inn, redeem at a JW or a Ritz. Right. So the network is is a very powerful driver there. Uh, As are the credit card programs, you get the points from the credit cards. Marriott has a credit card. Hilton has a credit card. You know, they all do. They're really uh, merging in with uh, Amex and Chase Rewards, Mm -hmm. Chase Sapphire, and all the different credit card point programs that are out there. But they drive the business. Residence Inn is a great product. Uh It has uh, good margins. The brand standards are very strong. The customer loyalty is very high. The average length of stay is very high. And that uh, drives down property level costs
1: for those products. Uh And it's interesting. So if you go, I'm thinking I do have some brand loyalty there because I stayed at a bunch of courtyards on business travel. It's the perfect place to go for business travel at that end of the spectrum. And for an extra 10 bucks, I'd rather guarantee quality. Like that matters to the consumer.
0: It's the cleanliness and the quality that you know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. So people are always talking about the alternative accommodation space and the Airbnb space. And I'm a big fan of Airbnb. They have a lot of terrific products, Mm -hmm. but the sales cycle is longer. Uh, You have to investigate the product at greater length. When you go to, quote, check in, you know, maybe you're staying next to somebody's uh, cat And you're taking out the kitty litter and you got to find the key under the mat or by the mailbox and you have to coordinate the pickup of the key. Uh, Not undoable, Mm -hmm. just a longer sales cycle. So I don't see Airbnb encroaching on the business traveler. It's a terrific product for the leisure traveler. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: But I think alternative accommodations is about 12% of occupied uh, room nights right now. In the United States, there's about a billion occupied room nights per year. And 120 million of those occupied room nights are Airbnb. They have way more units, but they're not available 365 days a year. And the pricing is uh, all over the shop. And they don't have meeting space and the amenities that hotels have Uh that are built in. And the fitness facility and quite often a coffee shop or... Associated or adjunct parking, uh-huh. so you've seen the hotel business has already returned to its 2019 levels, its pre-pandemic levels, and that is with zero inbound Chinese tourism, mm. and very, very little uh, international tourism, largely because the dollar uh, has become so strong that it's now become 30 percent more expensive to come to take a trip to the United States. Yep, even with those two major headwinds. Uh, Inbound international travel is about 11% of total hotel nights, and Chinese inbound tourism has always been a big number. Chinese tour groups, they are almost non-existent, and travel writ large is still back to its 2019 levels. So it's a testament to how strong uh, travel is. I actually think that right now we're uh, in the roaring 20s after the last pandemic— People wanted to get out and see the world. They were Mm -hmm. tired of getting, being cooped up in their basement and stuck in their house like they were during COVID. They want to get out and see the world, see their friends, see loved ones.
1: And you're describing the Roaring Twenties as a really good time, except that predated the depression which came next. Is that what you're also suggesting or no?
0: Well, everybody, listen, it was nine great years, Uh huh. you know, and it was uh, better to have uh, loved and lost than never to have loved. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, type of situation. We'll see how this plays out. But I think we have a nine-year window of terrific sentiment. And
1: you know I hope it doesn't end the same way. Oh, my God. Well, if we have a nine-year window of fun, I'm really looking forward to that because that fits my <laughs> career path. So <laughs> that's going to work. Go back to just a couple things and then let's keep the conversation going. But you talked about why not just invest in the residence inns and the Hampton inns, given what the returns are for you does that not work as a strategy? And do you, because you go up and down the stack?
0: Uh, we go up and down the stack. We're opportunistic investors. I don't think you can have an investment thesis that just focuses on those two asset types. Mm-hmm. There is not enough white space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this has not gone unnoticed by the rest of the hotel business. So those assets price uh, at higher numbers than some of the other flags. Uh, in the hotel business. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of our opportunities come when the hotel needs renovation and the existing owner does not want to put in the three to five million dollars to a building to make sure that it's competitive with its uh, nearby competitive set.
1: And and think about Uh, that cycle of timing, say as compared, we do a lot of work in the apartment business. We talk about value add in the apartment business all the time. But I know what a tired hotel looks like even more than I know what a tired apartment looks like. And so is that always going to be the case, or are some investors, and maybe you, are investing all along the way, so therefore there's not a moment in time where you go, okay, better do a redo?
0: I mean, hotels should be renovated every seven to 10 years Mm
1: -hmm. is
0: the general cycle. Not dissimilar, I think, from multifamily or some of the other food groups. The reason you don't see tired multifamily buildings is you only live in one place. Yes. You have no- reason to visit an old dilapidated class
1: B multifamily building. Dilapidated not seven to 10 years. Dilapidated a different story. And, it's true. and if you walk into them, you do feel tired, but you just don't care. In a hotel, you go, gosh, I'm depressed. It's not your place. Yeah. And people make, you know,
0: moment to moment decisions about where to stay, which hotels to stay at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to keep your product competitive and that, you know but you also have to watch the margins and you have to watch the return on invested capital uh-huh. so those are the the different prongs that we weigh every day on the competitiveness of the product
1: uh-huh. and talk about this return to pre-covid levels in business travel versus vacation travel so help think about that and and then just feather in higher end hotels and what that means in each of those categories because we've talked about residents and in Hampton, now talk about that stuff that you're trading on.
0: Yes. So you've seen an explosion of leisure travel. In the last three years, the Federal Reserve has basically airdropped $4 trillion mm-hmm. on the economy. That's a good thing from a spending standpoint. Right. So we are not seeing any signs of a recession from where we sit right now. I sent a note out over the weekend after seeing our performance across our 150 hotels. And it was terrific across the board. So everybody's calling for a recession and inflation is terrific for hotels. We have been able to raise our rates uh, substantially across the United States. Average daily rate was up 15% in August and about 13% in September compared to 2019 levels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're not seeing a recession. And I think to your earlier question, a lot of that is being driven by the Four and five star hotels—they are charging more than ever, mm-hmm. and it's allowing all other boats to raise their rates as well. Everybody is drafting behind the five star hotels,
1: and the five star hotels are doing great. And when the five star raises two hundred bucks their rate, I'm a budget conscious person, so I'm a, even for leisure travel. I'm back to the residence in at that point because I'm just not going to pay that. It's crazy. So, but then that sure. gives you percentage pricing power in a big way.
0: Correct. If luxury goes up 200 bucks and we can go up 50 bucks at a residence in, it's a huge win. Right. Right. And and from a value perspective, you still think you're getting a good deal, right? Because you're not willing to pay the extra 200 at five star at five star. Right. And you say, oh, but I'm willing to pay an extra 50 bucks. And that's just an incremental 50 versus where
1: we were in 2019 and 2018. Yeah, go back to another comment and then I want to go to um, business travel but it's back to that democratization thing because it's really interesting. Because most anyone can afford a weekend splurge. It, it's democratization. Anyone could stay at a super high-end hotel for the weekend and drink champagne and just feel really good. It's available to everybody. It costs it's more Available money. to everybody. And human
0: beings are experiential people. We actually trademarked the term experiential hotels. But a lot of this, the democratization, has been driven by the ultra-low-cost carriers. In the industry, they call it the ULCCs. Mm-hmm. And this is Frontier Airlines and the low cost carriers. You can now fly to Florida for 49 bucks from right. New York mm-hmm. and stay at a Spring Hill Suites by Marriott and fly back for 49 bucks, And that's a terrific getaway at a very modest price point. Right. Right. That didn't used to be the case in the 1980s, even the 1990s. That was a heavy lift from a consumer
1: pocketbook standpoint. So there's a product for everybody. Mm -hmm. People have their roller boards on their laps. If they're sitting in $49 flights, it's not comfortable. (laughs) Well, but they still get to go to Florida for 49 bucks. And if they
0: want to pay more than 49 bucks, they can fly United, right? You know, that's a choice that they made, Yeah. yeah. right? They, They would rather keep the 50 bucks in their pocket and have a little lesser flight experience but still be able to take the trip
1: right and stay at a better hotel lesser flight experience because you can make the trade whichever way you want you don't care if your rental car is fancy or not although if you care then you're going to do that it's the concept of unbundling the products yeah what the air carriers did and you're
0: seeing some hotels do it and we're spending a lot of time on this is not to say one price and you get these 10 products but unbundling it so the room and the sleep in a shower component is at price. And the swimming pool is another price. And the early check-in is another price. Obviously the hamburger is another price, but it allows you to segment the elasticity of demand to the various customer bases. If you are a business traveler, generally speaking, you're not going to use the pool. So why should you pay for the pool? If you're the leisure traveler, you want to use the pool. And how much are you willing to pay for the pool, right? That's a different uh, price point at different star-level hotels, right?
1: It's all true. It's also gross, though, because everything has a cost now. There were things that came with it before, and now everything has a cost. And those costs, just every time the hand's out, you go, oh, kind of gross. Well, but you can choose not to buy the product. Right. Well, oh, I know. But if you, if, uh, but if you need it, then the hand's out.
0: Well, but it's consumer choice. I understand. It's the micro economy. When you buy a song... On Spotify, you might pay a dollar. On Apple Music, you might pay a dollar. You can always not buy the song. And if it's your favorite song, you're going to pay the dollar. Or there's subscription-based services. It's easy. You know, there, there's various pricing models depending on your demand profile.
1: Question I do have about hospitality, because I used to have five bucks in my pocket to give to the doorman. I don't have cash anymore. And I feel lousy and the only time i really feel lousy about cash is when i go to a hotel because those people are kind of used to getting a buck or five bucks or whatever it is how and and i can't do a vr code maybe i can maybe i have to is that coming no it's true cash is completely gone away yeah and it it is an issue uh across the
0: industry and it's something that the the hotel industry is trying to solve for is to get you a vr code and it's about how many taps and clicks it is right but we want to give you the ability to with two taps send somebody three bucks right or send somebody five bucks just you know it's not a heavy lift the issue comes down to uh personal uh information Mm -hmm. privacy security hackers right if it's very easy for you to give somebody five bucks It's also presumably easy for a Russian hacker to take that five bucks out of your
1: electronic wallet. Also becomes a taxable five bucks and not an untaxable five bucks.
0: Well, you get into taxes, but you know, those tips are typically taxed. So, and now there's a record of it. Uh So it is taxable income, but it's more of a, from a product standpoint, we need to give you the ability to tip uh, and to tip the housekeepers in the guest rooms And, right, because people want to do it. Yeah. And our team, it's good for our team members. Right. But we get, nobody carries cash anymore.
1: Yeah, you can't keep your business together if you don't, if you take away that incentive from a big party workforce. Let's keep going. We—we I said we're going to talk about business travel. How has that recovered? Or I was going to say or not, but I think it has recovered. So what's that look like?
0: It has recovered. It's about 80, 85% back. People are booking corporate conferences. They're just doing it on a short-term booking window. Right. Much shorter than it has been in the past but by and large it is back and is there more work from home than there has been in the past yes but that is creating a greater incidence of conference attendance even more meeting attendance so if you don't have to go to the office anymore you still need to see your colleagues periodically and you got to meet somewhere so you meet in a hotel meeting room or you go to see people at a conference so the incidence of travel Continues to increase and work from home is, is actually pushing that incidence of travel.
1: This conversation's actually been more about psychology than almost any other of the leading voices conversations I've had. So you, you keep th- thinking about the consumer and consumer psychology and pricing. And then also you talked about the experiential hotels brands, which is a psychologic term. So talk about both of those things mashed up together.
0: I mean, I think business is psychology. And it's about meeting customers' expectations. And the, the media is actually doing a nice job right now of driving those expectations in terms of inflation and rates. And, you know, the customer wants to be out there on the road. And if it's a business traveler, seeing their customers, uh, and if it's the leisure traveler, seeing their loved ones. So, you know, I think the hotel business is really the intersection of customer psychology because hotels are little cities. You know, they usually have food service, waste management, you know, obviously housekeeping. They have lots of different products
2: uh-huh.
1: within the hotel. And, you know, every customer is slightly different in terms of their needs and wants. So your yeah. TWA hotel, because this is an emblematic of your company, I want to talk about this. 100,000 people are coming through because this is the airport or they're coming through your Correct. hotel because they want a quick drink. That's 100,000 drinks. You can't do that. No, no, it's not 100,000 drinks. Uh, That's
0: meetings, guests, hotel guests, people coming in for coffee, uh, people coming in. A lot of people just come for drinks. You know, it's a destination uh, unto itself. But 155,000 people fly out of JFK every single day.
1: Yes. 155,000 flying through JFK is different than 120 coming into your hotel and having some moment of commerce. Talk about that project and you went, this, this was a risk and out on a limb and you got a lot of press on this. I remember when it came out, won a lot of awards. What does that mean for your company and for your brand to have that? Uh, with the,
0: TWA was a labor of love and it was a real passion project. I used to be a baggage handler for Delta Airlines at LAX and I sat and watched the TWA building and fly out of JFK and it sat there vacant and dark for 20 years. And, you know, it's one of those, ah, somebody should do something with that project. I wonder what they are doing with that building. Uh, and so one day I woke up and I decided to be the somebody and we dealt with 22 government agencies. Uh, we had 176 consulting firms, Hmm. nine law firms work on the project. Uh, we had about 7,000 construction workers work on the project. It took a few years to execute. But, you know, we have uh, a 200,000 square foot lobby. It's the largest hotel lobby in the world. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the main centerpiece, of the swooping shells. Right. Uh, and it's 66,000 square feet of columnless space. So it's the largest columnless volume in the world. It's an acre and a half
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, with only four points of contact with the ground. Uh, we parked a 1959 Lockheed Constellation. Uh-huh uh behind the hotel that we turned into a cocktail bar the plane used to be air force one it was designed by howard hughes when he owned twa he built the twa flight center at jfk Uh in conjunction with aero Sernin, who was the designer and the architect uh, of the project but you know that airplane was not easy to get into place we brought it down from maine came down i-95 Uh, On a truck, it's 110 feet long. So we're a supersized load versus an oversized load. Right. 358-mile journey with the Maine Stadies, the New Hampshire Stadies, the Connecticut Stadies, all participating. We got stuck on the Throgs Neck Bridge for a couple of weeks, which was an interesting experience.
1: You got stuck Uh, on it or before it? Just before the crossroad. Thank God. Okay, good.
0: But you can't uh, hang a Yui. Yeah, uh, When you're 110 feet long on a bridge. <laughs> and so then we brought her into Times Square. We call her Connie uh-huh. and uh, she put on her best dress and her pearl necklace and we brought her into Times Square. She wanted to see the bright lights of the big city for one last time before her final resting place. So that was a project itself. Then we built our own power plant for the project and we built an infinity edge pool overlooking the runways, which is the number one plane spotting space in America. We have a 10,000 square foot fitness facility Uh with thousands of members of the gym.
1: Thousands Um, of members. And are they people who come to the airport every day or people who go through the airport?
0: A lot of airport employees. Okay, good. people that You don't think there are 40,000 people that work at JFK every single day that never fly anywhere.
1: Right. It's a city. Back to that city concept, like a hotel is so
0: you know, TSA agents, uh, customs and border protection agents, the fire department, the police department, all of the people that are checking you in to your flights, all the baggage handling, right? port authority employees, uh, all got. the cargo uh, employees. I mean, you kind of, most people don't stop and think about all the different functions that are going on in an airport.
1: It's an entire world and they know each other. They, They interact every day, those folks. It's interesting because the story you just told about this hotel is a story that often in real estate sinks companies instead of floats companies. If your timing is off, right, so many people have it, I'm going to call it an ego project. With that level of love and attention, it's often the second owner who makes money. We know that story. Sounds like it's worked out really well, but also it does give your company and you a, a core history story which I think matters. It's a attraction unto
0: itself. And people love the building. Yeah, The reception has been spectacular. But, you know, it's not for the faint of heart from a development standpoint, but from a demand standpoint, it is at an international airport. Uh, and that demand
1: is not going, uh, going away. The other interesting thing, and, and then we're going to have to wrap up, is, is um, I know too many of those Hotel spaces with soaring spaces, often those soaring spaces fail. And I'm thinking of all the old Hyatt, what's that? Uh, what was John th- Portman Atriums. John Portram Atriums, which when I first saw them were the coolest things I ever saw as a 22-year-old. And mm-hmm. then by the time I was like a 35-year-old, they were like dead spaces. And how do you get them back? Uh, well, we have a terrific John George restaurant
0: in this space called the Paris Cafe. Uh-huh. We have a Twister Room we have an entire section of the building that is dedicated to tab cola. Uh-huh. Uh, which is a totally artificial beverage. It's the first Diet Coke. We trademarked the year 1962 uh, for the project. So everything is about 1962. So when you walk into the building, you feel like you've walked into 1962. There is uh, a lot of special drinks on the menu. Our, our best-selling cocktail right now is called Jet Fuel. <laughs> And people love it. There's a huge food hall. There's coffee shops. There's lots of stuff uh, for people to do. We have a camp TWA. We have an ice skating rink and a roller skating rink, ping pong, and uh, cornhole for the kids. uh, Bumper cars in the summertime. Uh, There's all kinds of stuff to do. There's a lot of exhibits. Aero Saarinen's office is there. Howard Hughes' office is there. Uh, we have a 1962 living room i love it uh, you know 1962 was the first year that the um jets played you know the jets are named after the new york jets are named after of kennedy course. airport it's the first year the mets played uh their first game uh john glenn circled the earth that the earth that year it was the only <laughs> full year that uh jfk was president you know uh it was the first year that a james bond movie came out I,
1: it's a uh, fascinating it, cultural year. It, I can it's tell you inter- about the Jetsons. Oh, of list. course you can. So can I. <laughs> you, you could riff on that. And it's really interesting because when you, when you turn the worm and riff on something endlessly, it becomes fascinating. And then you create all kinds of creative ideas. So I have two questions mm-hmm. to end the conversation. One is you get about a minute on experiential hotels and what that means and what's different from your other brands and how that permeates your company. And then a minute... On uh advice for young people entering the real estate business. So those are our two wrap up questions. Okay.
0: From an experiential hotel standpoint, I always envision your guest in the hotel, in one of our hotels, you go meet a friend for dinner. Yeah. And your friend says, Hey, where are you staying? And you say, Oh, I'm staying at X Hotel, comma, and what do you say about it? It's so cool. It's got them. You're not going to believe this thing. You're not going to believe this thing. They did this. It has this. This is wild. Right. That to me is an it's more than just a hotel stay versus "Ah, I'm just staying at that hotel over there. Anyway, next.
1: Right. There's a story behind it. And it totally contradicts what you talked about before with the courtyard because there's nothing interesting.
0: No, but that's why the product works. Yeah. Because it's a great product. It is not an experiential hotel. Yeah. Uh, but it's still a great product and it's a
1: great investment. And from my leisure travel, I talk about that all the time because I've stayed at a hotel in Stockholm. My daughter and I stayed on a backroads trip and it was the coolest sure. hotel. So you just got my voice yeah. going to the same thing that you just arrived at.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, at TWA, we created our own font for the hotel. It's little things like this that make a big difference. Uh, and you see them and you feel them, whether or not you are aware of them. You know, maybe you're not a font guy. If you are, there's a terrific movie called Helvetica, Uh which uh, I read 12 books on Howard Hughes and the history of TWA to prepare for this project. But, uh, you know, the font and the typeface contributes to the experience. Yeah. As do the activations, uh, et cetera. So uh, not every hotel is an experiential hotel. And in fact, I would argue that lots of five-star hotels are very milk toast. Yeah, they are. It's fancy marble for the sake of fancy marble, but it doesn't have a story behind it. Yeah. And humans relate to stories. They want to interact with uh, a building and that's the fun stuff.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And it's interesting to have that atop a brand that has all the hotels that you have, which can't all be there. But I'm just going to make the bet that that attitude invests the rest of the business that you have. So uh, it, it drives a lot not. of the thinking. Yeah, it cannot. Okay, last question on Leading Voices is always uh, guest advice for a young person entering the real estate business. Be different, dare to be
0: different. And that doesn't necessarily mean with your product, but you you need to differentiate yourself from the other candidates and Mm -hmm. the other professionals, Mm -hmm. and you gotta have a shtick. Why are you unique? And I think unique comes in all different shapes and sizes, Mm -hmm. but having a point of differentiation Mm -hmm. can be what you're known for Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and what sets you
1: apart from the rest of the field. It's interesting, people say be authentic, which is a cousin to what you're describing but it's also allow your freak flag to fly. And people are told not to do that. You're the first guest who said this. So I love no, it. No, you should fly
0: your uh, differentiator. Uh, you know, some people are authentically boring mm-hmm. and that's not helping you to be authentic. Uh, we, we live in a watered down, milk toast environment. And, you know, you need to be thoughtful about how you're differentiated, Right. I'm not advocating being offensive or not being politically correct, but there, there are many ways to do it, but you got to think harder.
1: Yeah, and be smarter. It's wonderful advice. Uh, I, I felt that the first time I heard you speak at, at the Fisher Center in yourself, and you've done it on the call today, and so I really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening into leading voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.